Good morning, everyone. My name is Karis, once again, uh, and I have so enjoyed working with our youth in the past and just being a part of this community. And so I just wanna say, to start off with, how thankful I am for this opportunity to share and learn from God's word together this morning. And as we've just heard, our text begins with the words, now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. Well, this kind of intro definitely raises a question. So what exactly happened right before our story that caused Elijah to kill a bunch of prophets and then collapse under a broom tree in despair? It's almost like we need a previously on Survivor or whatever TV show you watch section. So allow me for the next couple minutes to just start a previously in the life of Elijah section for you. Elijah was one of the greatest Old Testament prophets, and he lived in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 9th century BC during the reign of King Ahab, who was a particularly bad king in Israel's history. Ahab was married to the infamous queen Jezebel and known for adopting the supreme Canaanite god's religion, Baal, who was the god of storms, along with the worship of Baal's consort, the fertility god Asherah, who is also known, to, known as the queen of heaven. So scripture and archaeology confirms that Ahab built many altars and even a temple to Baal in Samaria. And not only did Ahab and Jezebel worship other gods, but they were bent on killing all of the prophets of Yahweh. Scripture summarizes that Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those who had gone before him. Oh, and I should also mention, if this wasn't enough, that during Ahab's reign, there was also a terrible drought that came across the land for, for several years, making it impossible for me to go on without saying that during Ahab's reign, there was no rain. Had to get that in there. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So, and it's into the midst of this idolatrous, violent, and parched season that Elijah rose up as the only remaining prophet of Yahweh to confront 450 prophets of Baal on this famous Mount Carmel standoff, which happened in the presence of King Ahab and all the people just before our story took place. And they wanted to see which god, Baal, or Yahweh, would respond to the prophet's sacrifices with fire from the sky, or what some commentators have connected to lightning. Who would respond with lightning? And so with this context in mind, this is the backstory, again, that happens right before our story. So we have all of the prophets on Mount Carmel, we have the 450 prophets of Baal, and then we have Elijah alone. And the odds kind of seem stacked in the prophets of Baal's favor, because not only do they have the numbers, but they're chanting, they're, they're cutting themselves, they're pouring blood out on the altar, and they're chanting for hours and hours. Plus, their god is the god Baal. He's the god of storms. So it would seem like conjuring up lightning is something that would be in his job description. And then we got Elijah on the other side, alone. He builds his altar and then he drenches it in water to make it that much harder for any form of lightning to consume the sacrifice. And then he just prays, very simply, God, come, reveal your glory, turn the hearts of the people back to you. And after hours and hours of chanting over here, Baal, the god of storms, the god of lightning, has not shown up. And after just a moment of praying, Yahweh, immediately sends lightning down and consumes the sacrifice. And what's also cool about this story is not only does this moment reveal God's power, but it provides what the people so desperately needed. Because with lightning comes a storm. 
And so the story concludes with the storm rolling over the land, and finally the dry land is drenched in much-needed rain. But one more thing happens in this story, which our text alludes to, and it always gives me pause. At the end of this story, after Yahweh's amazing defeat of Baal, Elijah has 450 prophets of Baal slaughtered, murdered. And this is how our story ends, and then we start our text. And now at this point in Elijah's ministry, this might have felt like the high point of his career as a prophet. And I'd imagine as the rain began to pour down on the the parched land and Elijah descends Mount Carmel, that he probably carried with him certain expectations. Expectations like maybe King Ahab and Queen Jezebel would repent from their evil ways, or at least flee the country after this major slapdown that Baal just had. Or surely he hoped that the people of Israel, who had just been chanting, the Lord, he is God, and when they had just seen that Yahweh was God, perhaps he thought they would return to Yahweh, maybe even with Elijah as their leading prophet. Expectations that things in Israel and things in his own life would get better, because that's what happens when you win, right? Well, as you already know from our text this morning, the long-term results of the Mount Carmel duel between Elijah and the other prophets turn out to be the opposite of what Elijah had hoped for. In fact, this marks the beginning of a much more difficult journey where we see that even Elijah, who's experienced God's providence and power in the most remarkable ways, now experiences darkness and despair. Neither God's decisive defeat of Baal nor Elijah's words or actions lead to the reform or the revival that he had hoped for. And instead of being greeted with honor, our story begins with him being greeted with a death threat. Jezebel wants to do to him exactly what he did to her prophets of Baal. And so very quickly, the power and victory of Mount Carmel fades into the background of Elijah's fear and his exhaustion and his disappointment over how things turned out for him. And so he's emotionally drained, and then on top of this, he's physically exhausted from journeying over 110 miles from Mount Carmel in the Jezreel Valley in the northern kingdom, all the way down to Beersheba, which is the southernmost town in the kingdom of Judah. And so not only does he move out of the political region of Ahab and Jezebel, but he has to go so far, so he's physically exhausted. And he ends up thinking, this isn't even far enough for me. And so he journeys another day out into the wilderness, leaving his, his uh, servant behind. And he goes to the same wilderness, actually not far from the place where the ancient Israelites once wandered for 40 years, carrying their own dashed expectations and disappointment. And here under a broom tree, Elijah displays all of the signs of overwhelming depression. The prophet who used to refer to himself as one who stood before the Lord is now sleeping throughout most of our story. He deliberately leaves his only companion behind and seeks isolation. He complains. He needs to be told to eat twice. His view of reality is distorted, and he no longer even wants to live. But maybe there's something even more significant behind Elijah's exhaustion and depression. Because remember that at the end of the Mount Carmel standoff, Elijah commanded that all of those prophets of Baal be slaughtered. Maybe he even takes part in the killing himself. This is one of the most violent accounts in the Old Testament. And what's interesting to me is that the text never specifically says that God told him to kill those prophets. 
nor does Elijah ask if he should kill the prophets. And I can't help but at least wonder if after the massive high of leading the standoff between Baal and Yahweh and seeing Yahweh's victory in such a decisive, miraculous way, if it's possible that Elijah took matters into his own hands in the name of God. We can't know for sure, but I can see how it would be easy as a prophet who, is, who God is moving through in such powerful ways to begin to confuse God's agency and success with the prophet's own ability and to assume that he knows how and what God wants to accomplish in this world. I wonder what would have happened if Elijah had asked God, what now? Perhaps not only the people would have repented, but the prophets of Baal as well. I guess we'll never know. What we do know is that after Yahweh's incredible display of power and then Elijah's decision to have all of these prophets murdered, life does not appear to get better for Elijah. In actuality, we see Elijah begin to take his eyes off God and turn inward, becoming completely overwhelmed by disappointment and fear. And actually, in verse 3, where it says Elijah was afraid and ran for his life, the word for, uh, for afraid is not the typical Hebrew, Hebrew word used for afraid. It's actually the word for to see. So Elijah saw and ran for his life. And so in a very uh, not only symbolic way, but literal way, Elijah's eyes do not see God in that moment. They only see approaching death. And so he flees and ends up collapsing under a broom tree. I've had enough, Lord, he says. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. As if to say, I'm of no more use to this world than those who are already dead. This is hopelessness of the deepest kind as his attempt to evade death ends up with him under the shade of a scrubby tree, and he's now asking for what he was fleeing from originally, asking for death. And this motif of hopelessly waiting for death is not unfamiliar in the Bible. Actually, in Genesis, Hagar, who was exiled by Abraham and Sarah, was sent out into the wilderness, and once she had run out of water and run out of hope, she ends up putting her young son, Ishmael, under the exact same tree, under a broom tree, and waiting for his inevitable death. And then there's the story of Jonah, who after preaching repentance to the city of Nineveh, sits under the shade of a vine that God has grown for him. And in this case, he stubbornly waits for judgment and death to fall not, in, not on himself, but on the people of Nineveh. At first glance within these three stories, the tree or the vine provides something good, right? Shade, limited protection from the harsh desert elements and the beating sun. I can remember during last year when I was in Israel studying, uh, I was hiking through the, the Negev and I remember becoming so physically exhausted that I ended up taking a break under one of these very broom trees. But in the end, my shaded reprieve only made it harder for me to get back up and keep moving forward. It's like the tree offered this strange sort of comfort for me as I was sitting there panting and clutching my empty water bottle. It offered just enough shade to make me want to stay, but it didn't actually give me what I needed to get out of the desert. I was still very dehydrated and hungry and tired. The tree didn't change my situation. In actuality, it kept me there longer. And eventually, I would have to find the strength to get up and to catch up with my friends if I wanted to get out of the literal desert, which I did. It's almost like 
the protective shade of the broom tree offers a kind of comfort, but what it doesn't do is move Hagar or Jonah or Elijah or myself for that matter forward. The shade of the broom tree can shelter and even preserve our hopelessness. And when this happens, we can become stuck, not just in a physical desert, but in the emotional deserts within our hearts. And so this is what we see in the case of Elijah. We see him begin to take his eyes off God and choose the broom tree for shelter as he stubbornly waits for death. And given his attitude, we might expect some sort of divine rebuke from God, perhaps a reminder of what he literally just accomplished on Mount Carmel, or a divine word to tell Elijah to stop complaining, to just trust in God, get up and go already. But this is not what God does. Instead, we see God showing deep compassion as he nourishes Elijah so that he will have the strength to go on to the things God has planned for him. And so Elijah experiences a divine encounter with an angel who provides him a jar of water and bakes him a cake over coals twice. And the Hebrew word for coals here is ruzapim, and it's extremely rare. It only appears one other place in the entire Bible, in Isaiah 6.6. And it's in reference to the hot coal that a seraph takes from the altar of the temple of the Lord and touches the lips of his prophet Isaiah to commission him and to cleanse him of his guilt because Isaiah had been expressing feeling unworthy and scared. And after this moment, Isaiah says that he hears the, the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah is able to answer, here am I, send me. Likewise, the food and the water that the angel offers Elijah, I think have both physical and spiritual authority, not only strengthening his body, but commissioning his spirit for the journey ahead. And so in this story, instead of rebuke, we find grace. In the dry wilderness where one does not expect to find food or water, God provides a meal of divine nourishment. And rather than just commanding Elijah to obey, to get up and go, there's this deep empathy and tangible help from God. There's this invitation and a sense of commissioning and preparation. Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Only after Elijah is strengthened does he get up and go on the journey of 40 days and 40 nights, a segment of time that reflects back to the Israelites' 40 years in the desert and points forward to Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. And this journey takes Elijah from one mountaintop experience to another, from Mount Carmel to Mount Horeb. And our text today ends with Elijah arriving on Mount Horeb. But if you read on, spoiler alert here, but if you read on, you will find that on Mount Horeb, Elijah experiences the fullness of God passing by him in a very unexpected way. There's dramatic fire and wind and an earthquake, but God doesn't make himself known to Elijah in these displays of power and intensity. But rather, he meets Elijah in the silence, or in the still small voice, as some translations render. But let's go back to the broom tree, because I think this is the pivotal and sometimes overlooked transition that links these two mountaintop experiences together and takes Elijah from what at the time might have seemed like the greatest mountaintop experience of his life, immediately followed by disappointment and an emotional crash, to an entirely new and arguably more sustainable mountaintop experience on Mount Horeb. 
But the thing is, when Elijah was under the broom tree, he didn't know Mount Horeb was coming. All he sees is the broom tree. All he knew was the despair he felt. And so what does this story have to do with our stories? Well, for those of you who have struggled with depression or burnout, who have perhaps smiled your way through conversations all the while, not feeling anything inside, who have felt your passions and your interests for life or the things of God waning, you know what it's like to have collapsed under your own broom tree and cried out, God, I just can't do it anymore. I can't make this relationship work, or I can't find satisfaction in my job, or I don't feel your presence at work in my life anymore. I can't bear up any longer under the disappointment or the failure or the deep loss or loneliness that I feel. Or maybe I've served you faithfully all my life, and yet it hasn't turned out how I planned or I expected. For you who have been or are now under a broom tree, or whatever that place of temporary relief represents for you. You know that in those moments, you need something more than a bit of scrubby shade. We all need help getting out of our deserts. We need divine nourishment, because I think we are all at risk at some point or another of sheltering and even giving up under our own version of the broom tree during our greatest trials and disappointments. For some of us, broom trees might look like seemingly harmless coping mechanisms. For others of us, it might be full-blown addictions. For others, it might look like certain mindsets or opinions that make us feel powerful or in control or justified. But our broom trees have one thing in common. They can't deliver us from the desert. Only God's nourishment can do that. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, okay, that's great and all, Karis, but the thing is, I don't often have a divine angelic visitor popping over to my house and cooking me a meal and giving me water, and so you might be wondering, what does that mean for me? And well, what I take away from Elijah's story is two things. First, we need to realize, we need to see and realize that we are hungry and we are in need of nourishment. French philosopher Simone Weil wrote this, the danger is not lest the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but lest by a lie it should persuade itself that it isn't hungry. The danger is not lest the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but lest by a lie it should persuade itself that it isn't hungry. And the second thing that we need to then say is yes, we need to say yes to God's gift of divine nourishment, nourishment that come, can come in a variety of ways. This might look like saying yes to the presence and help of friends and mentors and family, letting them care for us and help us. It might look like spending time in scripture and prayer and reflection. It might look like watching and consuming things we know will build us up rather than just empty distractions. It might look like taking part in the sacraments and liturgy and rituals each week like we do here. Whatever God's nourishment looks like for you, what this story makes abundantly clear is that it was not up to Elijah to feed himself or even to immediately get up and leave the broom tree. It was just his job to accept God's gift of nourishment that came to him where he was at, stranded in his depression, stuck under a broom tree. He didn't deserve it, 
He didn't earn it. It was pure gift. All he had to do was say yes and to acknowledge his own exhaustion and hunger and to lift his eyes up to see what God was offering and say, yes, I will eat and take what you are giving to me. Actually, the angel's uh, invitation reminds me of Jesus' last meal with his disciples where he says, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. Take and drink, this is my blood poured out for you. You don't have to do anything, just take it. We can't get out of the desert without actual nourishment that strengthens us for the journey ahead. And we live in a day and age where we are constantly consuming, but perhaps not being nourished at all by what we are consuming. And so I want to close with a question. In what ways or way might God be offering divine nourishment to you today? Where in your life can you say yes to what he is offering you? and believe that God does have more for you. The Mount Horeb experience of knowing God more fully is always ahead of us. And sometimes it takes laying down our dreams and self-created shelters to take on God's dreams, which are far greater than we can even imagine, but are also measured by a very different scale of greatness. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now for some of you, you might be thinking, That's interesting and all, but I'm actually not under a broom tree. I'm feeling pretty good right now. And to you, I think God might be saying, my spirit is at work in you. Be sensitive to my leading. Will you be available? Will you step out? Will you make my nourishment known to those who are under broom trees? Will you allow me to communicate my presence and my words through you to others? If, however, you find yourself like Elijah, lying hopelessly under a broom tree today and saying, it's too much for me. It's just too much for me. I want you to know that God sees you under that tree. He loves you just as you are, and he has so much more for you. And so receive his compassionate word to you this morning, the same word he spoke to Elijah under the broom tree. Take and eat, for the journey is too much for you. In the name of the Father, 